Delkin, and this is On the Line, my podcast where I talk to friends of mine living around the country about all things NBA hoops. We do some NBA-related deep dives, drafts, news from around the league, talk uh, current state of the league. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new to the show, you can tweet at me at onthelign underscore pod. I'm on Instagram. If you have any thoughts about the show or the state of the league or an episode uh, that, that I've published recently, you can email me at onthelinepod at gmail.com. Last, if you could please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Um, I greatly appreciate it. I sincerely thank uh, everyone who's left a review. Uh, it goes a long way, especially with the NBA season getting started here. So um, thanks to everyone who's done that. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Um, the NBA season is fast underway. We're learning all sorts of things in the early goings here. The Warriors have picked up right where they left off last year. They're steamrolling the entire league. Uh, also, the Bucks and the Raptors look great. Um, the, the Denver Nuggets are super fun. They're a surprise story out in the West. The Spurs are beginning to click. That's fun. The Kings, the Sacramento Kings, they're above 500. Who knew? So the NBA is back, and life, of course, is very good. Um, this week on the show, we're going to dive back into the Allen Iverson series that Ben Craw and I have been working on for the last couple of months. So, um, yeah, if you, if you missed the first two episodes in the series – feel free to hit pause on this uh, episode. Go back a couple of weeks ago and catch up on the first two parts. Um, The episodes are titled Iverson, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. And this one will be waiting here for you whenever you're ready. Um, You know, working on this series, Ben and I have, you know, quickly realized that we couldn't really have a full comprehensive conversation about the life and impact of Allen Iverson without touching on some kind of bigger, larger social issues. And I don't think it's something, frankly, that we were even totally prepared for when we had the idea to do a a podcast about Allen Iverson. But race and class and inequality and poverty, frankly, are just... You, you, you can't have a, a, a conversation about Allen Iverson without touching on some of these issues. And the, the psychological implications of those, those issues um, had an undeniable effect altering you know, AI's worldview. And much of the first couple of episodes, we reflect on Iverson's incarceration and the political nature of that process of him going to jail and how and why he wound up there and the injustice surrounding it and the detrimental effects that our penal system in this country has on so many lives, on so many lives. People who aren't star athletes, who maybe don't have the same privileges, who maybe don't get the second chances that Allen Iverson was fortunate enough to get. So as we continue talking and reflecting about AI's brief undue stint in a corrective facility. I think it's also important to remember that, you know, in this country we have a voice and I just want to encourage everyone to exercise the right to vote um, this Tuesday, November 6th. So get out there, you know, your voice matters. And um, if you don't like the way things are going in this country, uh, you have a chance to do something about it. So um, let's pick up where we left off. It's January, 1994. Virginia Governor Douglas Wilder, the first African-American to serve as a governor in a U.S. state since the Reconstruction, the first ever African-American elected governor, 
has just granted clemency to 18-year-old Allen Iverson. Welcome back. This is the life and times of Allen Iverson. So yeah, so he's sitting in prison, has no idea, you know, what the rest of his life looks like. And he was there for four months. And then we enter into the picture the governor of Virginia, Douglas Wilder. Now, this is another, like, crazy detail to me. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be so crazy. Maybe I'm naive. But I was sort of shocked to read that Douglas Wilder was a... He was the, he was a black governor, but he wasn't just a black governor. He was the first black governor ever elected in America. This was in 1990. Wait, in, what? Yeah, right? You're like... I mean, I know that, you know... I thought race, you were going to say in Virginia. No, no, no. No, in America. In the history of America. There was one African-American uh, governor in Louisiana in 1872, but he had become governor because uh, he was oh elevated my. from lieutenant governor, and he served for literally one month before his term ended. Oh, my Lord. And that was in 1872. Since then, there were no black governors until 1990. I mean, there were black senators, sure. There were black congressmen, congresswomen. They were black mayors, but there was no statewide black governor until Douglas Wilder was elected in 1990. 1990. And so it's like, what are the odds that of all the times to be in prison and of all the states to be in prison, Alan Iverson was... You said 1990? 1990, he was elected, yes. Or maybe he was elected in 89 and assumed office in 1990. I'm not totally sure of that. But yeah, 1990, first black governor. That's so problematic. Yeah, right? Kind of crazy. I know. I was like, oh, wow, I really would have thought that there'd be more. Oh, and since then, there have only been two more, Deval Patrick in Massachusetts and David Patterson in New yeah. York. But of course, Patterson was only governor because Elliot Spitzer <sighs> right. couldn't keep it in up. his pants. Right. Um, so yeah, it turns out that um, it's pretty hard to be elected governor if you are African-American. Yeah, so David Patterson uh, it was the third black governor. Well, so technically, the very first one was this guy named uh, Pinckney Pinchback, um, who was uh, who became governor of Louisiana in, in 1872. 18, so maybe he's served the third, for, maybe he's the for fourth. one month. Yeah, but you're telling then me it was Deval Patrick, who was elected. There have been less than ten governors. Uh, less than five. Less than five African American governors. To be grammatically uh, pedantic about it. Yeah, fewer than five. David Patterson, um, who was a lieutenant governor, who was a lieutenant governor elevated over because uh, for Elliot Spitzer, Spitzer left fucking office up. in disgrace. Um, and yeah, that's been it. Um, so, um, and we wonder why there's like systematic racism in our legal system and like mm -hmm. state government, Mm -hmm. which is actually like pretty, pretty important. It's not just like federal laws, but all sorts of things happen at the state level. Um, this is, this is, this is horrifying. Yeah. So Douglas Wilder, um, you know, quickly becomes aware of this case, um, and uh, people lobbied him uh, very hard. We, I think we mentioned uh, at the uh, top uh, this uh, activist group that was formed, SWIS, yes. after the, uh, an acronym made from the initials of the four defendants, because there were four, uh, Iverson and his three teammates. Um, among the people who lobbied uh, Governor Wilder uh, were the musician Bruce Hornsby, who grew up in nearby Williamsburg, Virginia. thought that was a fun wow. little uh, piece of trivia. Um, so as one of his final acts before leaving office in January 94, because honestly, like, even though this seemed like such an obvious miscarriage of justice, it was still controversial enough, um, being, you know, the, one of the, f- the first elected black governor, um, it was, it was a serious, um, 
you know, sort of expenditure of political capital um, for uh, for Douglas Wilder to um, you know to to kind of work work the levers of, of power and uh, and get Allen Iverson out of prison. But as one of his final acts before leaving office in January '94. Governor Douglas Wilder granted clemency to Iverson. He didn't pardon him. He granted him conditional clemency, which is an important distinction. What's that mean? Um, So pardon means like basically like, I think, um, again, I'm not a legal expert, but I think a pardon is basically just like, you're, it's wiped clean. You're no, you know, there's no longer a, a record, record of your that you were guilty of. Yeah, this thing. and you're out. You're free. Proceed with life as usual. Uh, clemency, however, conditional clemency means that you can leave prison, but there are strings attached. There are conditions. Um, one of the conditions um, was that uh, Iverson was barred from participating in organized sports um, for his uh, for the remainder of his high school education. Um, he also had to abide by a curfew and seek family counseling and things like that. Um, but but critically, he could not play sports um, his senior year of high school. Which his he, livelihood. Yeah, um, which he was still in the middle of. So this is December of 93. Um, in fact, it was December 30th, right before New Year's, that... Uh, that Wilder made his decision, and um, and so Iverson was released from prison, but he was not able to go back to school and play basketball. Um, he had to complete his education through a, a couple of different um, kind of avenues. Oh, one um, he served four months. Uh, yeah, he served four months. So he was imprisoned in September, released in, de- in late December. Um, uh, one other fun little historical tidbit, um, irony, if you will, is that um, so you think about how, in a weird way, fortunate Iverson was that um, he was imprisoned um, in a state that had a African-American governor. Directly after uh, Wilder granted his clemency and made his decision, he left office in January 94, and he was succeeded as governor by a man named George Allen. (laughs) And if you know anything about George Allen, uh, you know that he was a notorious racist. (laughs) Jesus Christ. uh, I wouldn't say, like, I mean, it's I don't want to, like, paint too broad a... uh, Paint with too broad a brush. Brush. But, but George Allen, um, uh, he was governor of Virginia for six years um, and then became senator in Virginia, uh, lost his reelection as senator in 2006 because of an infamous incident where he, like, called, um, uh, he used the word macaca to address a, um, an opponent's, uh, an opposing campaign's, like, that's tracker, right. like a guy, like, filming him during, like, a, a campaign rally. I know about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's George Allen. So. Yeah. It, I mean, again, uh, I don't want to, like, just label him. Uh, but there is evidence but, uh, to suggest say, that just, he's a little insensitive. Let's Suffice it to say, if, to he racial were, if, identity. if he were governor, if it had been two years later and he were governor of Virginia, I don't think Allen Iverson would have been granted claims. As lenient. Yeah. Jesus. Um, yeah, shouts to George Allen and his uh, <laughs> Senate career, which went down in hilarious flames. Um Anyway, uh, so Iverson's out of prison in uh, December 31st, 93. Um, For incredible luck. Like, what incredible luck to have this person in office sympathetic to his situation. Like you said, like a matter of months, years Mm -hmm. afterward, it probably wouldn't have broken this way. And maybe we never know Allen Iverson, the NBA player. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, so the other ironic thing is that if 
the bowling alley brawl doesn't happen, or if it does, but it's you know slap on the wrist and nothing, ha- you know, no no big uh, thing comes of it. Allen Iverson most likely, Allen Iverson, the, the basketball player, most likely never exists. He's a football player. He would have right. for sure gone to college to play football. So Gary Moore talked about how they were enamored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is sort of perfect, I think. They were enamored with the gold helmets, the gold of, helmets no, of, of the Notre Fighting Dame. Irish. Yeah. yeah. That was the dream. Yeah. To be the quarterback and there's no slash question in my mind. Cornerback, that, defensive back, safety for yeah, Notre Dame. Win a Heisman Trophy. Win a Heisman Trophy, go to the pros. Yeah, he wanted to Deion play for the Sanders. Dallas Cowboys. That yeah. was his favorite team. Right. Yeah, um, but in a weird way, like we have the bowling alley he, to thank for. The he fact could that- have and should have been Deion Sanders 2.0. Yeah, he should have been doing the high step down the sidelines. Oh my god! On, a, an, yeah. on an interception, celebrating in the end zone, or or been doing like the Randall Cunningham like flip into the end zone. Oh, totally. That, that was Randall Cunningham, yeah. right? I yeah, so, like yeah. like he that should have been Allen Iverson, the football player, the NFL football player. Yeah, for the Dallas Cowboys. Yes. Yeah. Could have done anything he wanted. And instead, he was incarcerated, went to jail, and suddenly, um, I don't know if you have an opinion about this, but tell me, like, why why basketball? Why did he, why the basketball route as opposed to the football route? Oh, well, that's... Uh, I have a thought here, if you don't. You mean, why did it turn out that he well, was able yeah, to play like, basketball instead of football? If, if, the dream was, if the dream was the Dallas Cowboys, if mm-hmm. the dream was the NFL if 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 Gary Moore and all these people thought he's a the NFL was the dream that's Allen's main sport why did we wind up at Georgetown playing basketball I'll tell you why because after he got out of prison or while he was in prison mm-hmm. basically all those schools that were knocking at his right uh, door and trying to figure out you know what they could do to get him uh, on their team um, they stopped coming they Guess stopped what? knocking they stopped calling and in fact no one was really coming around uh no one was recruiting alan iverson anymore everyone wanted to just kind of steer goods. clear of that whole situation alan, despite listen talented kid clearly mm-hmm. you know a, a, a freakish athlete but it's just it's too much baggage it's too much of a national you know the spotlight on want him it. we don't want all that noise and mess no. that that yeah, it's just too too much scandal. Allen Iverson is a survivor. <laughs> Allen Iverson is a survivor. Okay? Well, he Al- is. Allen Iverson came up through abject poverty, and when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Yeah. And Allen Iverson was incarcerated. All of his scholarship opportunities dried up. He yeah. wanted to go to Notre Dame. Guess what? Notre Dame is a squeaky clean Catholic institution. Oh, they weren't going near, near Sorry, that. guess what? You're not going to be the quarterback for Florida State or Notre Dame or or any of these schools or at Miami or 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 California, UCLA. Guess what? It's all gone. Mm-hmm. So Allen Iverson took what was in front of him, which was John Thompson and Georgetown. John Thompson, the next name in our saga. Yep. Um, but before we even say John Thompson, yep. we need to mention Ann Iverson, his Please. mother. Yeah. Because she, you know, like we said, she had kind of a checkered. Checkered is the, is the word I was looking yeah. for. Um, yeah. You know, she did what she could to provide. She wasn't always there for her son, but she loved him. She encouraged him to play basketball. But probably the most important thing she did in his entire life was when he got out of prison and they were trying to figure out kind of like what his options were, since no one was presenting him any, she took it upon herself 
to recruit John Thompson. John Thompson didn't recruit Iverson. Ann Iverson recruited John Thompson. Went to Georgetown. She got a couple of friends, a couple of his coaches. I think Gary Moore was with her. And in December of 93, they literally drove down to Georgetown to have a meeting with John Thompson. And she basically begged uh, for her son's life uh, in front of John Thompson. Um, and John Thompson, you know, knew the whole story. Um, he had um, he had actually visited Iverson in like the spring of '94, um, so this was a few months after he got out of prison. Um, and John Thompson had like spoken to him, um, but it really wasn't until Ann Iverson came and and sort of literally like pleaded her case um, that he sort of opened up to the to the idea. Um, and now I think is a good point. All right, well, so. Let's see. We could talk about... All right, so here's a couple quotes from from John Thompson um, about uh, about Anne uh, and, and sort of like what she said to him. Um, so Thompson said, if it weren't for Anne, he never would have considered it. Quote, he had just come out of prison. In order to take Alan, I had to realize that I couldn't incarcerate him also, um, meaning that he had to kind of like adjust his own attitude and, and, yeah. and perception of him um, in order to kind of like see the potential of him. Um, and let's be clear, like obviously he also saw an incredible basketball player that was going to win him basketball games. John Thompson was a basketball coach first and <laughs> foremost, but he was also a guy who gave a shit. Hey, um, I, I have a theme here. Yeah. Allen Iverson has always been an opportunity for people. Oh Yeah. Gary Moore, huge opportunity for Allen Iverson was an opportunity for for Colleen uh, Killalay. Killalay. Yep. Allen Iverson was an opportunity for Gary Moore. Yep. Allen Iverson was an opportunity for Bethel High School. Mm -hmm. Allen Iverson was an opportunity for Larry Brown and for the Sixers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Allen Iverson was an opportunity for hip hop and the NBA. Mm -hmm. For Reebok. For Reebok. Allen Iverson has always been an opportunity for people to capitalize, to make money, to make a name for themselves, to piggyback on, on his authenticity yeah i totally agree and and talent yeah right yeah and so john thompson saw him for what he was which was a checkered troubled opportunity to win games yeah and yeah. and to rehabilitate uh, for for them to be the vehicle to rehabilitate alan iverson and to get alan iverson to the pros mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think that's that's spot on uh so i'm also going to read a, a quick thing here from uh, a 1996 washington post story talking about thompson and and, and I, Ann iverson's meeting with him so she actually came to him in december 93 iverson was in prison still at that point and um, and Ann uh, came to a meeting with him, and, and Thompson invited some of his aides to the meeting and said, quote, Mrs. Iverson asked the other people in the room to leave so she could talk to me alone, Thompson recalled recently. We talked, and she asked me to help her son. I saw the love of a mother who was afraid for the life of her child. Uh, Thompson said he didn't make any promises to Ann, but, quote, I had to find out some things for myself about him before I met him. Uh, but Thompson had a history of offering opportunities to young athletes from deprived and sometimes troubled backgrounds. Quote, you know, there once was a law in this country that some folks could not, would not, and should not get an education, Thompson said. The effects of that didn't stop when we freed the slaves. You know, some of that racial history can be factored in when assessing an athlete's behavior. So 
John Thompson like fucking saw it. He saw he got everything it. Yeah, for what it, it was. Um, and also, just a quick aside here on John Thompson himself. What an incredible, like, legendary badass! Like, obviously, we know him as like the towel over the shoulder and mm-hmm. coaching Patrick Ewing to his uh, national championship, uh, which we love him for. Um, but a couple quick things about John Thompson that uh, some of our listeners may not uh, have remembered is that um, in 1989, John Thompson confronted a, uh, a Washington, D.C. area drug lord named Rafael Edmund. Have you heard this story? No. Okay, so um, basically this was when uh, Alonzo Mourning, was, uh, a young Alonzo Mourning was, was in, the, in the Georgetown program. I think it was like his freshman year. And Morning, um, you know, himself had come from a... From He's getting a, his own deep dive, by the way. Oh, yeah, Morning for sure. Um, <laughs> he came from kind of a troubled background. And um, when he got to Georgetown, he, he sort of got swept up in and began associating with hanging out in, at clubs and stuff with this drug lord named Rafael Edmund, um, who was like a serious, like, bad dude. Like, um, he later went to prison like a couple of years later. Um, but, but essentially the, the story, the legend goes, and it's not a legend, it's a true story. It's been documented in numerous newspaper articles and stuff, but literally like John Thompson, like invited this drug Lord, um, into his office and fucking stared him down and said like, you leave my players alone. Like, and he was like the only one that had ever like confronted this guy. Cause he's a fucking drug Lord. You, you don't do that cause you'll get murdered. You know, like that's how like drug Lords like work. Right. Um, but John Thompson was like, uh, no, like, I'm in charge here. You need to fucking stay away from my, my athletes. People. Um, and guess what? It worked because John Thompson is a six foot 10 badass. Um, and the guy backed down. And once a morning, obviously, went on to have an incredibly successful college career and pro career, uh, thanks to John Thompson. Um, and he said at the time, quote, um, so there was a like, controversy about like why he, you know, met with this man and was it a bad idea? Was it dangerous? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like uh, there was like uh, all sorts of like, you know, different opinion, differing opinions about it. And Thompson said this to the press. I don't understand this expression of amazement. We cannot close ourselves off from the whole of society. Anybody who experienced the Len Bias situation knows we cannot isolate ourselves, seal ourselves off from people. We better start confronting these problems. We'd better understand we're incorporated into these problems. This isn't them or they. The people involved with the drugs and being killed are our children. It's not like somebody crawled out of some hole who is so different from us. So that's John Thompson. Um, what is yeah. John Thompson doing now? He's, I he's think he's like a, like a com- commentator for CBS. Yeah, or something. yeah. God, he needs to be doing. Yeah, and at big Allen Iverson's yeah. uh, Hall of Fame induction speech uh, just recently, 2016, mm-hmm. he said thank you to John Thompson, who was one of the three people on stage who introduced him, along with um, mm-hmm. Larry Brown and Julie Serving. Mm-hmm. And John uh, Allen Iverson said thank you, John Thompson, for saving my life, yeah. which is like. A quote that actually means, means he saved his life. Yeah. Um, like, so, yeah, John Thompson's a legendary badass. Um, love him. Just wanted to kind of give a quick shout out. Oh, oh, also, John Thompson stood up to tons of racism in his own life and career. Um, going back to his early days as a coach, because he was uh, one of the first uh, black head coaches in, in the NCAA. Uh, I think he started out in, like, the mid-70s, I want to say, at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and he was confronted with like racist banners. There was a, a poster that said something like the N word flop has got to go in like the early eighties. Um, there was all sorts of, uh, you know, racial stuff directed at Patrick Ewing when he was in college. Um, dude, it's a miracle. These people succeeded yeah. and triumphed. Mm-hmm. Like it's a story of triumph. Mm hmm. John Thompson, Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson. It's a story of triumph that these people were able to rise above the systematic obstacles in their way. Yeah, it really is. It's just insane. Long story short, Thompson agrees to take on Iverson, you know, sees what he has, sees what's in front of him, and uh, and agrees to uh, to basically, you know, save this kid's life and and take him on as a, as a basketball player. Um, so Iverson actually asked John Thompson at one point if he could play football at Georgetown, getting back to your question yeah. from a few minutes ago. Um, he said, uh, this was uh, Iverson speaking in an interview to Slam Magazine a few years ago. Um, he, uh, he, he approached Thompson during his freshman year and asked about playing for Georgetown's football team. Uh, he said, quote, I'll tell you what I think about you playing football. If you don't get your skinny black ass the F out of my face, you better. Just like that, I never thought about playing football again after that. I mean, he made it clear that this is not why I was here. <laughs> so, again, John Thompson had his own selfish reasons. Of course. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so that's why Allen Iverson didn't play football in college. And it's like, you know, football schools didn't recruit him, and also John Thompson was a basketball coach, and that's who he was the guy that uh, agreed to take him. So, you know, he, he got to decide. <laughs> um, and... Uh, uh yeah, so he had a very successful career at Georgetown. Can I sprinkle in something? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is to that very point, mm-hmm. like cynicism. Mm-hmm. It's like becoming uh becoming aware uh that you are a part of a machine. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're aware. Like Alan became aware that he was at Georgetown for a function, which was to help the basketball program be successful and to help John Thompson, you know, build his legacy and whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And Gary Moore had this uh, quote that I read that I wanted to share. And he said, relating back to the, 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 the trial, he said, Alan was wrongfully accused. He was wrongfully tried. He was wrongfully convicted and wrongfully sentenced for something he did not do. And it was a very, very mean and cynical decision that was made by adults on a young kid whose life was so promising and he will never let that go. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, again, like sprinkle that idea in that like Alan Iverson sort of understood the uh, adult world at a very young age and he became like woke and awake to the practicalities of the adult uh, the adult like business world at a very young age where mm-hmm. he understood like hey I'm here for a reason the only reason I'm at Georgetown is because that is that because that basketball coach had some compassion toward me mm-hmm. and also he had some use for me. Yeah. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. And you know, like there is a practical part of Allen Iverson that like understood that whole situation. And um, yeah, I, I don't think you can ever like separate the implications of his going to jail from his progression from 
high school all-star to college superstar to number one draft pick. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, that was how, that was just the way, it was almost like preordained. Like, that's just how his life, like, that was the path for him yes in a weird way yes um so he's at georgetown Mm -hmm. um he obviously is just you know he's he's basically released he's free uh john thompson who's famous for uh coaching big men patrick ewing morning to Matumbo, realizes that he needs to kind of like change up his own style uh he used to have like a, a very structured sort of um coaching style but he saw what he had in Iverson. He decided to basically just like let him free, let him loose. Um, and Iverson flourished. He uh, averaged 23 points a game over his two seasons. I think it was like 21 his freshman year and 25 points a game his sophomore year. Um, interestingly enough, won Big East Defensive Player of the Year both seasons. Mm. Um, he was, um, yeah, he was Big East Conference yeah. uh, Player of the Year, 95-96. He was consensus first-team All-American. Um, I talked earlier about his uh, his epic duel with Ray Allen in the 96 Big East Championship game, uh, which I remember vividly. Um, oh, another important point or another important uh, moment is um, before he got to Georgetown, I think it was like the summer before, but after he knew he was he was headed there, he got his very first tattoo. Wow. Yeah. So that's uh, that's something that's gonna be uh, you know a, a, a pretty a pretty prominent and important theme. Uh, it was a bulldog. Um, I think was his Where? very first tattoo on his uh, Calf? upper arm. Arm. Yeah, upper shoulder, something Great. like that. Um, and at the same time, I think as the bulldog, he got uh, a tattoo of his brand new nickname, which was actually coined by a, a buddy of his back from Hampton named Jamil Blackman. Um, as the uh, as the story goes, uh, Blackman was. This is a, a, a little tidbit from uh, the Kent Bab book that I read. So they were uh, hanging out um, at Blackman's house. Blackman was like doing laundry one night, and Iverson wanted a nickname like all the summer league greats: Earl the Pearl Monroe, Frank mm-hmm. Shake and Bake Streety, Rafer Skip to My Lou Alston. What would Iverson's name be? Then it had dawned on Blackman. The NBA, approaching the end of the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Michael Jordan eras, faced nothing but questions. Blackman blurted out his suggestion, and Iverson loved it. Hearing the nickname echoing in his mind, Iverson sat in the tattoo chair and pointed at his left arm, where his shoulder met his biceps. He wanted his new handle to ride with him forever, to define him, to speak for him. The needle vibrated and pierced Iverson's skin, forming nine letters in Old English type, and when the artist was finished, Iverson saw it for the first time. The answer. Yeah, that was his first tattoo. Yeah. Um, that was his first tattoo. And yeah, and this was in 1996 when, like, really the only player in the NBA with tattoos was, like, Dennis Rodman, who was, like, the, the league freak. Like, they weren't, like, tattoos weren't, they weren't a thing for basketball players. It wasn't acceptable. Right? I mean, I guess, like, Shaquille O'Neal had, like, the Superman tattoo, I remember, as, as like, a rookie. Remember, like, the big S? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, like, a couple of years earlier. But, like, for the most part, like, tattoos, like, weren't... Well, it was, like, you could have a, a tattoo mm-hmm. or two tattoos. Right, right. Allen Iverson made, Turns like... Out. Allen Iverson made his 
body a piece of decorative art. Yes, yes. It was as if a graffiti artist came in one night and spray painted his body in different with different logos and emblems and yeah. sayings and prophecies. That looked very cool, it turns out. Incredibly. Um, another important point uh, at Georgetown uh, came from an unlikely source, a walk-on by the name of Dean Barry. Uh, I don't yes. know if you know that name. Dean Barry, who was just a complete complete scrub like i don't think he ever went on to like play any anything anywhere beyond Let's georgetown but he taught ai the crossover um iverson saw it in practice one day and was basically just like he kept like stop killing, and he was like you need to teach me that move and he just stayed after practice hours and hours and hours until he learned <laughs> the crossover He's from like, dean barry i'm alan iverson i'm going to the hall of fame i need a you're move. a scrub yeah but you do this thing every practice that hey, i can't stop hey man I, I need show to, me that now i need a move that's gonna go down in history um enough that two idiots uh with a podcast in queens will draft me Jesus. in the signature moves draft in uh in 2018 can you can you help me out with that dean barry <laughs> dean barry yep so shouts to Dean Barry, who taught Alan Iverson the he's crossover. He's literally like dean.barry at gmail.com. Totally, like he's, like, he's, <laughs> he's probably like working at a car dealership now. Yeah. Who knows? Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Dean, so, if you're listening, yeah. good, shout out. Good on we you. appreciate you. Good on you, Dean. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Georgetown makes it to the Sweet 16 in 95. They right. lose to uh, Rashid Wallace and Jerry Stackhouse's UNC, UNC. team. They make it to the Elite Eight in 96, but lose to UMass and Marcus Camby. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, after two seasons, now this is another important point, uh, no player had ever left John Thompson's uh, Georgetown program before four years. Right. Until Allen Iverson uh, decided to declare for the NBA draft after just two seasons. John um, Thompson and Georgetown very much had the reputation of like Mike Shashevsky and and Duke. Mm-hmm. What like Duke was mm-hmm. circa two thousand except black. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's circa like two thousand ten or two thousand twelve. Like for a very long time. Duke basketball was synonymous with an institution where you would go to school for four years and be a collegiate athlete and you would play there your entire, you know, collegiate career and then may or may not get drafted and that was it. Mm-hmm. And you would go far in the tournament and, and, and the same was true of Georgetown yeah. where it was like, this is a academic institution first and foremost, mm-hmm. and anything that happens with you in terms of athletics was gravy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But AI was one of the first guys. It wasn't a stepping stone to the NBA. No. It wasn't a one and done. You don't use type place. you don't use Georgetown. You don't use John Thompson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he finishes up. Um, he declares for the draft. Um, he uh, in in declaring for the draft, he cites a need to uh, to provide for his family uh, because his. Younger daughter was still, you know, suffering from seizures and, or sorry, I keep saying sister. daughter, younger sister, because she was really young when he, when he, uh, she was born. Does he have a child at this point, though? 1995? Yep. So there you go. He did have a child. Tiara? Tiara. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So he cited a need to provide for them and his younger sister who required a, uh, a medical specialist for her condition and uh, declared for the, the big league. 
the NBA. So the draft lottery happens in, um, this is now, what, June of 96? Uh, late May of 96, yeah. whenever the lottery happens. I believe that it comes, to the final two are, um, is it Iverson, and, or is it uh, Philadelphia and, and Toronto? Yes. Are the, are the last two teams? AI and Camby. So it's down to the final two. Okay. It's uh, it's Toronto and Philadelphia, yes. and um, the guy you know, as you know, each team has like a representative um, sitting there for the lottery ball for the uh, the ping pong balls. Yes, and the representative of the Philadelphia 76ers is a man <laughs> named Pat Croce. Uh I mean, is this a good time to do our Pat Croce side dive? I mean, <laughs> you. I mean, you tell me. Like, I don't know. I'm happy to talk about Pat Croce all night, but we do have time limitations. <laughs> That's true. I mean, all right. What can you tell me about Pat Croce? Like, give me the bullet points on So Pat, Pat Croce. Croce is the president of the 76ers. Right. Um, he became the president of the team in uh, 1996. Um, it's after... part of a group led by Comcast and right. Ed Snyder. Yep, yep. Um, previously, he had served as the team's physical therapist. Um, he, <laughs> imagine I mean, going uh, from man, physical is, therapist. This is actually going to be kind of hard not to just do a, a full crochet pod. <laughs> we don't have to go full, but let me at least touch on a couple yeah. tidbits here because they're just too good. Um, so he would he was originally hired by the Sixers organization to uh, help seven foot six center Sean Bradley put on muscle. No, yeah, that was, was his, that really that was his original job for the team <laughs> was to help Sean Bradley pack on some muscle. Oh, because you see, he was a physical conditioning and rehabilitation expert. Um, Shout out so, to the Giants draft, which we'll be doing in the coming weeks. Oh yeah, um, Sean Bradley. Be the last time we bring up Sean Bradley's name, there will be more to unpack about Sean Bradley. FYI, but mm-hmm. uh, Sean Bradley is a six, a seven foot six, uh, white Casper the Ghost monster. Yeah. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, Pat Croce's uh, muscle regimen did not succeed for Sean Bradley, sadly. Um, you know, Wait, we were, so how did he graduate from trainer to owner? I guess, oh, I, I know why. Well, yeah. I don't exactly know why, but I know at least a little more detail, which is that he was, um, so he was a physical therapist yes. and, and a kind of strength and conditioning coach. Um, and he had a um, like a gym or yeah, a physical like a, therapy like a business like a brand. Um, like a like a physical therapist business that uh, expanded into a chain of like forty centers spanning eleven states. Um, L- L.A. Fitness or twenty four hour fitness level like, like that. Yeah, gold franchise gym level, level yeah. like. In, we're, we're, in yeah. 1993, he sold this franchise that he started in like 1984. Uh, in 93, he sold it for $40 million. Wow. Um, so it turns out when you have $40 million, you can just say, oh, I'd like to Invest. be a part owner of a basketball team. Yeah. Um, so he did that. He became president of the Sixers in 1996. Um, he's also a black belt in Taekwondo <laughs> and commented on the Taekwondo uh, uh, um, competition during the 2004 Summer Olympics. Um, <laughs> for anyone who wants to try to find that on youtube <laughs> i don't actually know if it's there but uh, i guess what we're saying is pat croce is so cool yeah, yeah. um 
there's uh, more like later on i don't know we could save some of some of uh his his the the rich details for later on in our in our saga in our um, in our crochy podcast yeah maybe we do need to do a whole <laughs> is that what you're getting i mean at? we could easily fill like a half hour to 45 minutes on, on crochy so maybe, pirate maybe we save it maybe we save it <laughs> we'll just give a little teaser there are pirates involved there are motivational books. FYI, we teased the Allen Iverson crossover, and now we're doing like a seven-part AI yeah. <laughs> like podcast series. There's bridge climbing. So I don't think it's that far fetched to be like, there's a four-part Pat Croce series yeah. coming up. There are bikers involved. Pirates. Um, yeah, there's a Key lot. Key West, Florida is a major part there's of a, the story. A, a short-lived television show um, where he goes from family to family is figuring Crunchy out people's problems. a motivational speaker? He is. Yes, yeah, that's both, what I both speaker and writer. Um, quite <sighs> prolific. Uh, yeah, Pat Croce is a real one of a kind. I would actually, this is, this is a hot take that I only developed recently. But I would actually argue that he was sort of one of the keys to Allen Iverson's success, not just in drafting him, but later on in our story, I'll, I'll explain why I think he was actually like a sort of overlooked, like critical figure um, whose departure kind of um, coincided, kind of portended with a lot of a lot of uh, the downfall of, of Iverson uh, in Iverson's career. Um, he he was a, he was an important guy. Um, anyway. Uh, for right now, we'll just uh, sum it up to say that he was the guy that drafted Iverson. Um, he and, and Sixers GM uh, Billy King, um, uh, you know, decided to go with this guy who, you know, had all this backstory and this controversy, um, but who was undeniably one of the most talented players of all time. Uh, he was drafted first overall in the completely historically stacked 1996 draft that included the likes of uh, Kobe Bryant, Ray Allen, Marcus Camby. Is Paul Pierce in there? Uh, I don't know if Pierce was. He may have I been. think Steve Nash. Antoine Walker definitely Antoine was. Antoine Walker yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Steve Nash. I think, um, yeah, like Kerry Kittles. Um, I don't know. A lot of, like, yeah, yeah. some serious serious greats um he was also the shortest player ever to be drafted number one he was the first point guard drafted number one since magic johnson in 1979 um so he gets drafted and um he's hugging his family he's giving his mom and (laughs) hugs and kisses and everything and then it's actually kind of crazy but if you watch the video of that um of that draft day Mm-hmm. When his name is announced by Commissioner David Stern, who will also come up again later in our story, um, he hugs his family, and before going up on stage, he walks in the opposite direction mm-hmm. of the stage. He walks away from David Stern and the mm-hmm. podium, and he goes all the way back, and the camera kind of like loses him at one point, and then they kind of find him, and the camera moves over and yeah. finds him walking back through the crowd, away from the stage, and he goes and finds two of his buddies, and he gives a huge hug to them. There's like a big three-man group hug um, before he goes on stage. That's how important these dudes are. And they're two of his best friends from Hampton, Virginia. Their names are Arnie Steele and Rasan Langford. That's a name to remember for later in our story. Okay. But okay. Um, those two guys, like that's kind of how important 
um, his his boys were like they they clearly like didn't even they weren't allowed to like sit with him during mm-hmm. the um, you know the draft because um, that's you know the tables are all set up and all the top picks are there with their family and mm-hmm. their you know girlfriends or whatever um, so these dudes were like off like outside of of the main area they like weren't able to like sit with him but he made it a specific point to go over give them a big hug before he went up on stage to shake David Stern's hand. Um, so that's important to remember. Can I introduce something? Yes. So at the 1996 NBA lottery, yeah, the draft lottery, yeah, Pat Croce was representing the 76ers on the dais. Yep. And <laughs> I feel like this is the epitome of Pat Croce. The league asked the 13 teams to basically remain composed and seated Mm -hmm. and well-behaved. Right, you're not supposed to celebrate. When the Sixers won the number one overall pick, the rights to Allen Iverson, the consensus number one pick, Mm -hmm. Pat Croce flips out. He he leaps around the stage, high-fiving all the people that just lost the NBA lottery. That's the thing. How do the other guys, like, uh, like even, they, like, meekly, like, raise their hand, like, uh, like... Uh, Yeah, congrats, Pat. They're high-fiving him for beating them. (laughs) Yes. And I want to say, like, that... That is what I remember of Pat Croce. He also that makes level a, he makes, of like psychotic enthusiasm. Yes, totally is like uncontainable. What, is what the 13, 14 year old me remembers of Pat Croce. He made a gesture towards the camera that was like the whole, like the two hand, like push away. Like oh, the, Jesus. It's I'm not even a raise the roof. It's like a. No, no, no. It's, it's like not a, a raise flop. the roof. It's he was literally gesturing like, like kind of like. F you, I don't care yeah. about your, your rule about me not celebrating. Like, I'm so excited. Guess what? I'm like, like he kind of yeah. like recognized that what he was doing was inappropriate, but he literally did the like, oh, like, I don't know, what's the term for that? Like, I'm doing it, but you can't see just it. Just kind of like listen. waving at the camera. It's like, ah, like, no ah, thanks. Get yeah, like, get out of here. I don't give yeah, shit about yeah. you. Fuck you. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to have, I'm so going to have good. my moment. I'm going to so enjoy good. this. So good. Because that's who Pat Croce was. Right. Um, so he's draft. Alan Ivers is drafted. Um, they hold a parade back in Hampton, Virginia on June 6th, 1996. Right. They have a parade, uh, Allen Iverson Day, um, to celebrate, uh, which a lot of people were like, oh, why are we celebrating this fucking convict? convict? Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it was a day where the city was attempting to kind of like heal itself and, and kind of like, yeah, move past the, the ugly history that they had gone through. Um, uh, in Iverson's very first game in the National Basketball Association, he scored 30 points. First game against Milwaukee. Wow. In his sixth NBA game, he goes to Madison Square Garden to play the Knicks, puts up 35 uh, against the Knicks in an upset win because they were still like a pretty, pretty good team back then. Um, uh, December 21st, 1996, he plays his first game against the Chicago Bulls, scores 32 points against them, and afterward, uh, Michael Jordan, um, who will also come up later in our story, uh, had this to say, quote, he sure has some confidence, said Jordan, who led the Bulls with 31 points. At one point, I mentioned to him that he was going to have to respect us. If you don't respect anybody else in this league, you have to respect us. This is the defending champion, mm-hmm. Chicago Bulls, mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, greatest player of all time, talking. He said he doesn't have to respect anybody. Yeah, so that was Iverson as a rookie Playing up against, going up against his, uh, you know, what he was always, he was always described as his idol, Michael Jordan. 
the, the player that he had a poster of on his wall as a kid growing up. I mean, I keep coming back to this. This is the guy that was incarcerated. Yeah, he doesn't like, respect anybody. You don't phase me, man. Yeah, like I just I've did, been through so much I did worse. Four months at a at a work farm. Yeah, prison camp. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm and not And the other players in the league didn't like it. Like, Jordan was like, all right, who the fuck is this, like, you know, brash kid? Um, a lot of players, like, you know, were, were very, like, rankled by it. Um, not to mention the media, which obviously, like, had a whole other uh, history with him. All right, we're going to hit pause right there. My name's Chris Wendelkin. This is On The Line. You can tweet at me at OnTheLine underscore pod. I'm on Instagram. If you like the show, you want to drop me a line, you can email me at OnTheLinePod at gmail.com. Go out, exercise your right to vote. Tuesday, November 6th. Enjoy the basketball, and I'll talk to you guys next week.